everyone, this is George Kroos, and welcome back to the November 2023 Highlights from the Innovators Mindset Podcast. And this is actually the last monthly one I'm doing. Uh, as you're going to see kind of throughout the month, as we get later, I'm doing highlights from the entire year. So we're pulling in some of the best, but I always like to kind of bring in together some of the highlights um, just from the past month because there's so many great messages. And, and, you know, I listen to podcasts all the time, and sometimes you hear some things and then you tune out, other stuff's going on, and you might miss some of the really great stuff. And so this is a great way um, to do this. But I want to do a little intro, and I just wanted to actually share a quote with you that I think is really, really powerful that I read uh, today. And just kind of getting into routines, I, I always take um, some time. I try, I've try. i been trying to do this sauna thing, and uh, it's <laughs> it's horrible. I'm, very, I'm not very good at it. The heat gets to me. And so just kind of sitting there is hard for me. So I actually read on my Kindle and I try to read as much as possible to keep me distracted. I read something recently and it was like, hey, it was a joke, but it was pretty accurate. It said, the best way to deal with your problem is to actually create another one <laughs> that you forget. And when I run, uh, sometimes I'm feeling a lot of pain in a part of my body. And what I've learned over time is that um, the best way to deal with that pain, this is actually kind of true. The best way to deal with that pain is to realize another part of your body is going to start to hurt right away anyway. So that that pain is temporary because something new <laughs> pop up. So I kind of do that. I try to distract myself uh, from the pain by, you know, doing something else. And um, I'm reading this book right now called Mastery by Robert Greene. And it's it's really um, pushed me and really made me think. I, I hear a lot of times, especially when you talk universal design for learning, uh, the focus on mastery. And I, I, I'm struggling with that. And the reason I'm struggling with it is because true mastery, you can't have kids being masters, you know, having mastery in every subject. And it's actually a ridiculous notion. To, do you know anyone that is just amazing at every subject? And if you do... They're very few and far between. And that's a very rare thing. But you know people who have mastery over their field, mastery over you know an aspect of their lives, but not in all aspects at all. And so when we talk about mastery, I think we have to help students figure out like what they're really, really good at and instead of trying to develop every student good at everything. Because that's not reality. And, and to be honest, you know, why, I don't want to be good at everything. I'm not interested in some subjects in school and neither are all of our kids. And we pretend that they are. And I think one of the struggles I've really had in education over the, especially the past few years is we're trying to get all kids good at all things instead of actually ensuring that every kid in our school finds that path to success that is meaningful to them, that they walk out knowing they're good at something. And there is a quote I read in this book by Robert Greene called Mastery. And it's from uh, the Greek poet. Give it up, you know, for for the Greek poets, right? You got a little, you know, inclination to Greek, right? <laughs> yeah, he's Greek poet. He's dead. So his name is uh, Pindar. I don't, I've never heard of this guy, or I don't know who this is. Um, and I really love this quote. It says, "Become who you are by learning who you are." Is that something we do in education? Is that something that we help students do is to kind of figure out what they're really gifted at or do we just want them to be good at everything? And I think, I always think about this in education. A lot of students, the majority, when they walk out of high school, 
you're like, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. And, you know, 18 years old, my God, like just thinking of me at that age, of course you don't know what you want to do with your life. But are we actually creating a space where we confuse students because we try to get them interested in everything? Or do we help them kind of identify their talents and their gifts through that process? And maybe they won't know exactly what they want to do, but maybe they'll be on a better path because they start seeing what they're really good at, what they're interested in, and help them find that purpose. And if we get every single kid good at every single thing, we're just kind of building little machines as opposed to people with purpose, people with passion, and people with gifts that they can bring. Because I think all of those different gifts brought together make our world a better place. And so I'll share that quote again from Greek poet <laughs> Pindar, become who you are by learning who you are. And it's a great focus, I think, something to think about in education. But let's be honest, it's good for the adults too. And, you know, I'm almost 49 years old. I'll be 49 coming up uh, very soon in, in early year. And sometimes I don't know exactly what my gifts are, what my passions are, and I... But I constantly try to explore, even just talking this out with you, not really having notes, but just having a quote, kind of sharing some ideas and thoughts. I do this because I want to learn openly and want to do this. I don't want to just, I, I hate the notion of like sometimes, it, and I, you know, probably get way more views if I scripted my videos out. But that's never been the focus for me. The focus is I just want to share my learning. And this is, helps me to figure out who I am, what I'm interested in, doing my portfolio, my blog over the years has really helped me figure out like, why do I write about this so much? Why do I have this interest in it? Which is why I'm such an advocate is that I hope students don't just write what the teachers ask them, but they kind of figure out what they're interested in through that process. So I'm still learning who I am, but I'm actively engaging in the process. And I think it's good for the adults and it's you know, obviously good for the students, but enough rambling. I know if you didn't find anything useful here. You will from our guests. Welcome back to the November 2023 highlights from the Innovators Mindset podcast. I was really kind of fascinated when you when you brought this up, and I think it's a really important conversation that we need to have. You know, more in education, and I think I think all of us when we're talking about this, you know, having a conversation before. I think a lot of times we want everything just black and white. Like it's either good or bad. Right. And my conversation all the time is no, we just got to be in the gray. It's all gray and we got to get in there. And one of the things you, I know that you talk about in this book is a focus on digital wellness. And I'll start with you, Tim, on this. Like what, when you say digital wellness, what does that, what does that mean? And what does that look like in a classroom? Sure. Well, and, and and you're right. You know, you know, rules and and uh, structures are black and white, but life is lived in the gray. And so, how do we allow the exploration of the gray? And uh, that because that that's where the magic happens, right? When we talk about digital wellness, it's really about you know human wellness, student wellness, school wellness, and, and yet there's there's some digital components mm -hmm. to it, right? A lot of times it's you know, people will look at at technology and say there's uh, what is the screen time that you have in your school okay well i mean does that really matter a lot right. of people will say well you've got that there's too much screen time or we need to have lids down i think that what we've seen over the the the, the last few years especially is that that there's a focus on the the social emotional needs of students and and staff and 
how does technology play that role? And is it causing more harm than good? Mm-hmm. Again, I don't think technology is evil or, or is the cause of the problem. It's the activities that we do, right? It's the, the other things. But when we talk about digital wellness, it's really about are we working with students to help them understand the benefits of the use of technology? I mean, there's plenty of, you know, that's, again, going back to uh, carbon dating ourselves, George, when, when back in middle school, for example, if you had a, uh, an, an issue with a friend, there's usually a cooling off period, like maybe you don't right. call them at night or you don't see them until tomorrow. Whereas now there's so much 24 seven access, right? And I can say, well, you know, look at what George did. And then there could be 16 or, you know, likes to that. And then you get upset about it. So it's, it's teaching kids to be good citizens, but the technology, you know, may or may not be the vehicle for that. It's really about finding that life balance, but not blaming technology for all the things that go wrong in a school and having schools say, well, you know what, we're just going to go um, without technology for a while. How does that help? It's much like we talk about uh, schools being one-to-one. Well, let's face it. Most of our students and staff are two or three-to-one. They'll have a phone and an iPad and their oh. school device, right. right? So it's not about shutting things off. It's about finding that life balance, but not life balance based on technology. It's about life balance. And then how do you incorporate your technology? So the, actually, the I think it was the American Pediatric Association uh, years ago basically said you shouldn't have screen time for a certain age. And, and then the, they changed the, the, um, the guidelines or the suggestions. Right. And basically I've had this conversation, so I'll, you know, do a keynote and an event and we'll, we'll start talking about this after the fact. And I'll say to someone, how much screen time have you had today? And they'll say, well, actually you haven't been on my phone all the time. I'm like, but do you see the screen behind me that you've been watching while I've been showing slides? Right. And so now here's actually, I want you to think about this differently. So you are, let's say you're on your phone for 15 minutes, but you're seeing the slides I'm sharing for an hour. So were you on the screen? Like where did you have screen time for an hour or is it an hour and 15 minutes, even though it was an hour. So like it, it's confusing. So the, 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 the American pediatric association, when they actually talked about this, the, this shift, and please don't quote me on this stuff. Cause this is like sure. two years ago that they, they, they brought this out, but I thought it was a really interesting conversation. They're basically saying screens are everywhere. So it doesn't matter the time as much as what you are doing when you are in front of a screen. So the analogy that I always use is let's say um, I'm busy and I'm, let's say I'm doing this podcast right now. And I'm like, okay, I just need my kids to be quiet. I could throw them on to Bluey, right? Mm-hmm. Or I can get them watching Peppa Pig and they won't, they won't move. Like I actually know the safest place they could be is Peppa Pig, right? And I, like I always joke, I know that my kids have watched too much Peppa Pig when they start developing a little bit of a British accent. Like that's like, now it's gone too far. (laughs) Right. So that's, do parents do that? Absolutely. Right. And anyone who's pretending they don't is lying to you. So now let's say my daughter and I are watching Sesame street together and we're having conversations about what's being said there. It's the same amount of screen time, but is it, is it better? So it's not really the, and I think, I think that was a really important point that you brought up, Tim, is that it's not really about how much time you have in front of a screen is what does the time look like when you are utilizing the screen? And that that's, you know, that's cause, cause the reality screens are everywhere, right? You could right. be watching this on YouTube right now. And like screen time, like what if you're listening to this on a podcast right now, 
does that change things because you're not looking at a screen, you know, and are you really paying attention? Are you kind of walking? Are you doing other stuff? Is it playing in the background? All that stuff that's going on too. Um, the other thing that I think is really important is when we talk about this notion of, um, you know, balance and conversations, one of the things I say to people when I'm speaking and I talk about my, my experience as a, you know, K-12 teacher, vice principal, principal, central office, and I make sure that they know that. And then we talk about it and then they'll say, oh, like kids are out of balance, out of whack. And I'll say, did it matter to you that I've taught? And they're like, yeah. I said, okay, why? And they're, and most times they'll say, well, cause it gives you credibility. Like you've been in the classroom, you understand some of the struggles we're going through. And I said that, and that's why I intentionally shared that. So sometimes when adults are giving kids advice, they're giving them advice on how to use this stuff, never using it themselves. And so I'm like, so to the kids, when you're giving them advice, but they don't have, when you're out of balance, and Wilverson wrote a post about this years ago, they see you as out of balance because you don't use the technology and you don't have the credibility with that too. Mm -hmm. And like, even I, I'm sure, I don't know how much you, you, you two follow me, but you know, I've lost a ton of right. weight over the last few years. Mm -hmm. yep. And part of that is not looking at my phone first thing in the morning. Cause I would get sucked into the Twitter, TikTok black hole, but, and I would skip my workouts. Whereas I like, don't even touch my phone except for to play music in the morning, uh, for my workout. And, and I feel so much better, um, doing that, but I also use technology, right? Like, and I use it at the times I turn off all my notifications. So I think, you know, that's a really important conversation. And when we are having that conversation with students, do we have the credibility from our usage of it and saying, here are some of the pitfalls that I've experienced and here are some of the good things I've experienced. So, um, there is one question I want to ask, you know, I'll turn this over to you, Ryan. Um, I'm, I'm really cu curious about this cause I'm sure there's overlap, right? But how does like, when you say the successful middle school instructional technology, how is this like, what is the overlap between, Hey, any school could use this, but this is also how it's specifically geared towards middle school. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm glad you asked that question because we, we feel like there definitely is some overlap. You know, we originally approach a topic from that middle school lens because what we wanted to marry the successful characteristics of a, of a middle school to technology practices. Uh, but within that conversation, uh, we think this work is applicable to elementary, to high school, and, and, and to any school. And, you know, some of the activities that we wrote within the book are applicable to, to, any, to any level. And, and we, we would say, just apply your high school filter, your elementary filter of what we know best of, of, of what works with that age level to your instructional plan. Um, you know, within, within the book, we talk about in, instructional technology and how we talk about instructional technology is the most important discussion of our time in education right now. And we, we firmly believe that uh, because technology touches all aspects of our life, uh, inside and outside of the classroom. As soon as students are walking out the door, their phone's in hand. So how we talk about technology as educators and as as, as a school and as a system is is so critically important. And I think that's, that that is, is where we really kind of missed the mark. Uh, you know, you, you hit on, on, the, on the last, Part of the conversation and that oftentimes we don't reflect upon our own usage and, and we have an activity in there that hey if we're going to be good teachers of, of of technology use for our students boy we better take a step back and be reflective on how we are using it as well and what our practices look like uh it, you know I, I i said to a group one time like hey you know if, if you're saying put your phone in the cell phone jail and you know you're you're saying technology bad 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 you lost those kids. Like, like they're gone. Like, like they, they think you're a dinosaur <laughs> and 
you, you know, so think using those really choice words and being very deliberate about our, our ways that, that we connect with kids around technology. If you went back to central office, and I don't know if you ever would, what would you change about what you did? And I know the email is one of them, obviously you want to be maybe bombarding, maybe yeah. as much as you used to what, like now that you have the perspectives on both sides, if you went back to central office, what, what do you think you'd, what, what would be a, maybe a different approach that you would take that you, that you didn't do necessarily before? I think I spent several years having focus group with teachers. So we had curriculum leadership meetings with math teachers, science teachers. And I think I did a really good job of having focus groups with teachers. We also had monthly principal meetings in different districts I've worked in. So I feel like I connected well with principals. But in my current role as assistant principal, sometimes that's a in-between role that gets overlooked. And if an assistant principal is supposed to go observe teaching and learning and, and, you know, give teacher evaluations, coach teachers, coach rookie teachers, they need to know what the curriculum priorities are and they need to know what's going on when we make changes in education. So I think quite often assistant principals in some districts get left out of the communication loop. And really the principal's not the only one doing the evaluations, but the principal gets monthly meetings with the superintendent and monthly meetings with their director. So I would I would have more focus groups with assistant principals because they are they're right there in the center of the action. And I think we could learn a lot from the perspective of assistant principals. And looking back on it, that was a perspective that unintentionally I often overlooked. I just thought, well, the principal is the voice of the admin team. We have a monthly principal meeting. So I would I would focus more on focus groups with that group. And certainly I think all school districts should have focus groups with teachers. That's something I did well, but a lot of districts don't have focus groups with teachers. Somebody in the central office writes all the curriculum or they right. buy all the curriculum and no one ever asks the teachers, what do you really need? Right. And then it's like, surprise, <laughs> surprise. Yeah. Right. So I, yeah, I, I appreciate it. I think that, you know, having those conversations, you know, getting that feedback. And I think it's, I think part of it too is it's not necessarily feedback, but when you ask people, um, their opinions, and then you implement them, they feel ownership. Because yeah. if you act upon their feedback, and they have ownership, and then it doesn't work, they want it to work, because they get they, they, they see their input in that space. Whereas if I didn't actually have any input and do I, I don't really care as much, right? It's like, well, this is a central, yeah. office. I don't really care. So um, I'd you- like to talk on that for just a second. Sure, go for it. Or, yeah. Probably first 20 years of my career, I focused on buy-in. That was a term we always heard. You got to get teacher buy-in. If you don't get teacher buy-in, the initiative will fail. So I spent 20 years focusing on buy-in. You can read some of my articles I write for Teach Better. And some of my articles recently are starting to talk more about collective commitment. It's not a term I created, but over time, I've realized what you just said. If there's a collective commitment to we're going to implement X, then everybody on the team at the third grade level is probably more locked into committing to doing that behavior. So I like now to talk more about collective commitments versus buy-in because I spent a long, and that's how the educational research when I was coming up through the ranks said, you need to get buy-in. So I still try to get buy-in, but then I tried to get a collective commitment, whether it's the end of the meeting or the end of three meetings, because without any commitment, we're just hoping for, for a change. And we can't do that with student lives. I struggled a little bit when you're thinking about AI is like, well, why should I even write anymore? Because AI can do this and do it way better than me. And it almost yeah. like, yeah. but you know, do you know what I mean? Like I, I felt that a little bit cause you're just seeing it like, yeah. Right? And so how did, how does someone get over that maybe, you know? And I, I feel like 
okay, that means I really got to focus on the stuff that only I can share that a, I can't share. That's, you know, somewhat personal. And I think you and I talked about in the last podcast, that really human connection. Yeah. How do you kind of get people to understand that in a different way when you have access to this stuff, how does it change, you know, our thinking so that we continue doing stuff that pushes our own learning? I think they just have to use it. And, and once they try and use it, they're like, Oh, that's really good. Oh, that's not so good. Oh, that's good. And then I think when you just see it, you realize, okay, this is a really good start, but I could do, I can make it better. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really just about using it. I, I know that with my own teachers. So with AI, it's so funny because I don't even, I, they don't know I wrote a book. Some of them do because they, endorse, they I asked some of them to read it first, but um, a lot of them don't know that I wrote a book and it's ironic that I'm like a, I guess, AI expert and right. Right in front of them. Um, but I try to empower them to be leaders. Like I don't want to stand up at a faculty meeting and them hear me all the time. So right. I know like, okay, Marina's doing this really great thing. Catel's doing this really great thing. And Emma's doing this really great thing. And I'll have a faculty meeting and like do station rotations and the teachers cycle through 10 minutes in each room and see what their colleagues are doing really great. And then it's not me doing it, but also they're sharing, hey, I did this. This is what worked. This didn't work. And now the last few minutes, you try it. And so they're walking out of each of those three rooms trying something and saying, okay, this worked, this didn't work. And I think until you put it in their hands and ask them to, to do it, no one will, no one will notice or see it. So I, I'm curious about what you're thinking is on this, because I love that you're giving people opportunity and time to utilize it themselves, because this is something I've been arguing forever is that too often. What we do is we jump straight to the teaching without doing the learning. Like we just say like, how do we get kids to use this? And it's like, well, you're not even using this. So how do you, if you don't understand it from the viewpoint of a learner, you're going to struggle with this, but this is actually very specifically in the New York area when chat GPT like was all over the place in probably December, maybe even as early as November, 2022, by January, I saw tons of districts in New York, not the state specifically city, New York city blocking it. Man, right. yeah, all of New York City is like the largest school district in the country. They yeah. block. So, so like, how how do we how do we uh, how, I guess not how do we how do you how do you get people to kind of see past this? Because um, I know you you know my brother Alec. His big thing is really how do how do you utilize this? Because a lot of people are concerned about cheating. Is like you shouldn't be concerned about cheating. You should be more focused on how does this actually take changing or teaching. Like yeah. that should be the the big focus. So. You know, if you're, if you're going to block it right away, then you're, people can still get on their phones. Like it's not like you can't have access to it. So like, how are you getting people like to kind of shift their thinking on this, to go beyond, uh, the, one of the best analogies I heard about it is that use it as a second brain, like to kind of see oh, that. So yeah. how, how are you helping that, that shift, you know, kind of, so that schools aren't blocking it. And I know you're doing this work already in your school district, but I know you're working with other schools and, and districts around uh, the world and having conversations, how are you getting them to kind of wrap their heads around it? I think the first part of what I always say is, and I don't like to use the word assessment. I really don't. But when you talk about assessment, if you are assessing the end product, let's call it an essay. That's a really easy example. Cause AI could do that. If you're assessing the end product, AI can just 
do that. So I think what we need to really re the, the area that we really need to think about is assessing the learning process. If you are checking in with your students, watching the learning evolve and guiding them throughout their learning process, and you could use project-based learning or flipped classroom or, I mean, any of the, the things we know work, um, you wouldn't be really concerned about cheating because you're I watching you're you're watching the learning and you're watching that student develop and learn and grow. I talk about this all the time is that people will say, oh, tech, you know, innovation, technology, they're, you know, like they're separate, you know, they're not really, they're, and I'm like, not, you didn't really do that because typically the people that are the innovation people in districts are the tech people that we just changed their title, right? Like, right. From like director of technology to director of innovation. And my argument's always been is like, why isn't your curriculum person? The yeah. innovation person, right? Because we're it's really about how we look at new and better ways of learning. So, how did you see like your role as you know as an English teacher really kind of you know moving towards that that role of director of innovation? Well, I'm not saying this just because I'm on your show, but I think your book, Innovators Mindset, I think that's that's really the right approach. It's a I it mean, is a mindset. No, I really mean yeah. that. So, like, you know, I love literature. I love writing. But no matter where I was, like you could put me anywhere in the world. Like if I was at a hospital, I was looking around the hospital for ideas on what I could bring back to our school or our, our classroom. Right. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, this this uh, doctors walk around with an iPad, you know, doing clinical notes and stuff. We should have that in our schools for our, you know, for our special ed education department or guidance counselors. Um, you know, I went I remember one time I went to a car dealership. And the car dealership guy had a name tag on. On the back of the name tag, it kind of spelled out their mission and their culture statements right. and stuff. I'm like, I'm bringing that back to the school. And so I think when I was tapped out by another district to become the director of innovation, they'd already seen the ideas that I was collecting. And so you, you kind of, before you're a leader, you lead, right? That you, right. That's, why you, that's why you get selected to lead. And I think, you know, I was thinking drones you know in the english classroom and right. my principal's like you're crazy you know that's not where drones go but uh, it really is your mindset and and i wanted to engage kids i knew what they were interested in i was interested in it as well but uh, you know technology shouldn't be technology should be woven and embedded in everything yeah. and a lot of a lot of innovation just isn't technology it's systems it's mm. it's a way of thinking it's it's um, who do we need, you know, what positions we need to create and things. So it's a mindset. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example of an innovation and you kind of alluded to it. And it's something that um, was advice that was given to me to think differently. Um, when people are moving into administrator positions or want to, they're applying for assistant principal, directors, things like this. And you mentioned that, you know, they already saw you leading. Uh, I tell people that are applying for those positions, find the leadership standards, wherever, whatever they use, and then actually show how you're meeting those leadership standards in your role as a teacher right now.